I mean, it's interesting. For you, Jan, you work, your industry is primarily men, isn't it? Uh, certainly the sort of um, infrastructure and construction part of it. Yes. How do you find, do you have to adjust the way you deal with, with a company where it's primarily men? Do you change the way you are with them to get what you want? Um, no, I actually don't think so. Um, when I went to Downer, I didn't come from the industry. I didn't come from that industry, and I thought, oh, that's hard, blokey work. I'm going to come across a lot of hard, blokey people. And, you know, I'm in the HR space, and, you know, that's all nice and soft and fluffy. Not really, but... Um, and this is going to be really interesting. What I encountered was probably the most people-centric, people who cared about their people, a completely different culture than I was expecting, and actually nowhere near as hard as you might think. Um, I guess um, you do have to take people from where they're at. Um, so if they've worked in a certain way for a long time. But I think as any leader, you just have to be authentically you. I, I don't know how to be anything different than that. Um, and I guess it's probably more about understanding the environment you're in and therefore, you know, if it's an environment that you must always start with the commercials up front, then start with the commercials up front. But that's not so much a gender issue. It's an issue of understanding your environment and understanding what works where you work. Um, to get what you need. Um, I don't think I've really used my gender particularly, um, but I'm also quite um, very deliberately don't, don't alter either. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I do think authenticity is more important than anything. I think that's what's also definitely coming out more and more these days. It could be more of it, though, is that being authentic is real. I mean, we see that too on social media as well. Uh, there are, I mean, there are, there are many industries that are, uh, I wouldn't even know if I'd say unconsciously gender biased. I just think about the media industry or the radio industry in particular. Can anyone think of anywhere where they've heard two women back to back? Uh, they haven't been involved with a man somehow on, on a show, on a radio show, where it's just been a woman and then another woman, one after the other? You don't, because we've been told for years that that's not acceptable and they don't like our, that people don't like our voices. And there is still a certain amount of that which we need to get through. But So if we're not hearing people like us or seeing people like us uh, on the airwaves, then there's going to be no change. I think also you spoke very briefly, Zana, about motherhood. Uh, and when we think about our children, we want them to grow up differently to how perhaps we did. We want them to be more inclusive. It's obviously really important. I've got three boys, so I really want them to be, you know, good to women. I just want them to be nice guys to women. Uh, and so I teach them what I can. But how do we go about doing this? I mean, how do we change the picture when there's, just, there's so much at stake these days? That's a really broad question that I've asked there. Yeah, um, I'll try and give a very generalised answer. Um, I think it's, I think um, children learn what they live right. So what we role model to them and what they see happening in the home environment or in their schools, you know, 
So is, are the tech and science subjects only being taught by men? You know, is mum the only one that's washing the dishes at home and, and doing the laundry? Um, all of those things that, you know, children are social, they, they socialised and, you know, they see what's happening and then that forms part of, of their expectations of, of their own behaviour. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, as, as adults, as parents, we have a responsibility to be good role models for our children um, at home, at, at work, you know, in the community. Um, I, my friends and family, all of them laugh because... In, in my family growing up, my dad was the one who always cooked. And we have this joke that if we waited for mum to cook, we'd be eating um, salads or, or sandwiches because, you know, don't expect anything else. And so I always grew up with that, thinking that that was fine. You know, it was, it was perfectly normal for both parents in the home to be responsible for all the chores. And that's what happens in, in my home um, and in the work environment as well. You know, how many, how many women in this room have gone to a meeting and being looked at as the person who would get the tea or the water for everyone else. Or do the baking. You know, or, or take notes, right? Um, so all of those things, you know, these sorts of behaviour that we kind of almost socialise to, don't do it. Behave in the way that you want, uh, you know, your children to grow up with and in the way that you want to be treated. I think if you want to do it, though... You, like, I'm a feeder, so I feed everybody. So if you're coming to a meeting, you'll, be, you'll get, probably get fed. But, um, I think there's yeah. a YouTube channel for that, actually. You probably make it with extra cash on the side if you wanted to. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, if, if you want... If, if Absolutely, you feel and that's part of the normalisation of it, yeah. isn't it? Is to make yeah. sure that it's, you know, neither gender, that it's accepted for both. Or, you know, how you grew up and what your natural tendencies are. Sydney, uh, we must talk to you about your time at Air New Zealand. Uh, obviously, you were there during the pandemic, and that was one of our companies that was greatly impacted on. How, what was it like to be working for Air New Zealand in the middle of that pandemic, and how did you deal with things? Oh, gosh. It was gutting, to be honest. Um, so I'm being honest. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Air New Zealand, of course, and like many of you who are Kiwis and have come to know, love, grow, grow to love Air New Zealand. Uh, I have and still do love Air New Zealand. And during that time, because about 75, don't quote me, about 75% of our uh, revenue was coming from internationals when we closed the border, you know, that created a very harsh commercial reality for us, which required some really tough decisions around our workforce reduction. Uh, and when I came in in 2018, we were at 12,500. Uh, I don't know where the number is now, but it's probably about six, maybe less. Um, but the point is, uh, those were the decisions that had to be made in order to uh, save uh, or keep the company afloat. Um, but in that process, as we were talking a little bit about well-being, uh, in the chief people function, the previous chief people officer there, my old boss that was in the boot of the car, um, <laughs> her car, um, we really tried to lead those decisions with uh, empathy and thinking about the well-being of the people. And it's not just uh, the people that we had to let go, but the people who were staying behind because many of those people had guilt 
about the whole situation. And, and granted, it's not anyone's fault, and you can say that all day long, but when someone's leaving the company, you know, it's still, it's still a harsh reality. And so what we tried to do is put as much around, you know, our approaches to well-being, whether it's uh, amping up our EAP or uh, we actually created this um, notification system where every day at a certain time it would get, you know, like I would get notified and if on a scale of one to five, one meaning, you know what, I'm feeling lousy or five, I'm like, great. I would get a call from my boss. Like if I put I'm feeling lousy, I get a phone call from my boss. Hey, how are you doing? So just to stay connected, because with COVID and people working from home, it's easy to get disconnected, even with Zoom. I mean, you're kind of out there and not seeing people every day or every other day. And so that's what we tried to do to make sure we tried to stay connected with the people in every way possible. Um, reaching out to nonprofits, which nonprofits reached out to us too, uh, other corporations, uh, universities, just as much as possible wrapping around our employees that were exiting and those staying, this kind of creating some kind of soft landing. Um, so make no mistake about it, guys. And if, if any of you work for Air New Zealand at the time or still do, it was a tough period. Uh, for Air New Zealand, and um, I think that we're coming out now. I saw some something on LinkedIn. I think that we're now in the thrive. That we had a strategy of revive, uh, survive, revive, and thrive. I think we're on the revive stage now. But uh, it was tough. It was a tough one. Um, but I feel like uh, we tried to do the best we could. You know, Maya Angelou has this quote that goes that where she says, um, "Do the best you can." And once you know better, do better. And I'd say we tried to do the best we could. And now that we know, hopefully, if anything happens like this again, we'll do even better. Well, you're right, because there would have been a certain amount of survivor's guilt for the people that got to stay and keep their jobs and keep their well-being and, and their income, uh, which not just in New Zealand, obviously, a lot of companies around the country. I, have, I spent some money on Air New Zealand the other day, took... Kids, this is terrible, took them to Queenstown for the first time. Never been there. I'd always been to Asia because it's cheaper. Uh, but I went and spent a fortune in Queenstown and had a great time. Dart, Dart River, uh, if you ever go down, have you done the Dart River? Where you go up and they have the heated like rails in the jet boat and you go for a two and a half hour jet boat ride. That was the best value that we had and uh, tells you all about the culture and the heritage around the area. Fantastic. That's just a little aside from Glenorchy. That was fun. <laughs> Well, I think we've covered off quite a few things today. Are there any, Jenna, there questions? Should we get to some questions? Covered off all the isms. Thank you. Oh, and Jen's got the neatest writing too. See, I could never do this job because no one can read my writing. Right, uh, some, well, let's look through these now. Can we open the conversation up to neurodiversity? and how you acknowledge, embrace, and capitalize on this type of diversity. Who would like to take that one? Neurodiversity, what do we even mean by that? Whose question is That's that? That's what I was gonna ask. I thought yeah, it was just me being a dumb. <laughs> oh. I wanted to say, well, not just stereotypical diversity, think of, but different ways of thinking. So you might look at the autism scale, um, people who typically approach ways of thinking in a non-linear? Um, yeah. Mm. Mm. I don't think, it's a thing, 
what I'll say, uh, but I'm not so sure a lot of companies focus on that per se. Oftentimes what you see, and you guys check me on this, we're talking about color, race, ethnicity. Um, we don't really think about diversity is also different ways of thinking, diversity of thought. And oftentimes I don't think that's something that's considered because we're so quick to check the box and checking the box is, box is not about diversity of thought. It's like, let's see some different colors, ethnicities, you know, nationalities. And so I think, I, I feel like that's kind of in the fore and maybe diversity of thought and neurodiversity might be kind of trailing that, but you guys may have heard something different. It's interesting because I used to talk a lot about diversity of thought and then I had a bit of feedback that said, that's just something men say to say that we've got diversity when we really haven't got any. Um, however, I think that's doing it a huge disservice because I think ultimately diversity of thought is what we're trying to achieve. Um, we've been running a campaign um, which is called Own Different, and it's exactly what it is. It's about owning your differences, and the tagline that sort of goes with it is it's our differences that make us different, and it's supposed to recast different as good because somehow along the way, difference sometimes got cast as a negative thing. And the whole point of that is your difference might be that, you know, you like eat, having ketchup on eggs or, you know, all your difference to be a bit more serious could be you think about things quite differently or, as you say, potentially, um, you know, some of our brightest people who've driven our technology, you know they're somewhere on the spectrum, right? But they're in the right jobs, supported by the right mechanisms. Our ability to thrive means we have to find a way to tap all the potential that we've got and we're going to be need to be broader. So I like the concept. Um, it can be a bit tricky to navigate and I think that's just a further step for us to challenge ourselves and as you say, not get caught up in which boxes are we ticking. Thanks for that, that was a good, good answer. Uh, we've got quite a few questions to get through oh, here, sorry. so no, it's all right. No, no, keep talking, keep talking. Uh, who wants to take this one? How do we deal with women in power who do not support other women? And we all know at least one of those. <laughs> who wants to take it? Sydney? <laughs> I'm laughing because I have my own personal experience with this, and it was actually in the military. Um, and so I don't even know where I'm going to go with this, but my story is that I was a young officer in the U.S. Air Force, and I was assigned to a very senior post with very senior officers. Uh, so it wasn't just the U.S. Air Force, it was the Marines, the Navy, the Army, and all of our NATO forces were also uh, at least top officers from our NATO cadre. And, um, I was good, really good at a certain thing, and this was had to do with operations and plans. That was one of my last jobs. And I had a female boss who was a lieutenant colonel, so about, I don't know, three, four ranks above me. And it was clear she wasn't happy that when someone needed this particular expertise, they came to me and said, hey, I need you to do this. So then I went off and I'm doing it. But the people who were coming to me were like a couple ranks higher than her. 
And so I think she just kind of watched that, and then finally she just said, hey, you know, anytime you get a request, you need to come to me. And then it just became a thing. It was like a lot of inertia between us. And I was feeling tormented because I'm like, what am I going to do? This guy's more ranked than this than she is. You know, it was like a back and forth thing. Finally, I actually had a side chat with her about this situation. And she, she actually admitted, that's right, I do have a problem with it. I'm like, okay, where do I go with this now? I was hoping she was going to say no. Um, but how it actually got worked out is the, the, the other senior officers, more senior than her, um, I actually had a little chat with them, and then they just told her, well, you know what? We're just going to assign Sydney to someone else. And so I ended up ultimately becoming, you never know, guys, so remember, be good to everyone. So I ended up being assigned as the aide-de-camp to one of the four-star generals, which is like seven ranks higher than her. And um, yeah, so that was my experience. But the whole point is, while, while I was going through it, I think the lesson here is while I was going through it, why I didn't like it, I knew something was happening, I didn't think was right, I'm thinking, okay, you're a woman, I'm a woman, we should support each other. Not the case. I tried to slow it down, right, and just tried to respond in a way, hopefully, that was, that gave me uh, the power, the growth, and the freedom. And by doing that, I think, you know, it all turned out okay uh, for everyone. Um, I'm no longer working for her. I'm working for someone senior than her. And, you know, did I think after that, hey, you never know. Yeah, I had maybe a little smirky, smirky <laughs> smile, but... Uh, Yes, yeah, so I, I think we should be supporting each other. That's been my own personal experience, which you wouldn't think that would happen in the military, but it did. Uh, so again, just treat people the way you want to be treated. Yeah, yeah. no, that, that's a great story. Um, thank you for sharing it. I think the thing with um, you know, being a woman in power, being anyone in power, that's a position of privilege, right? And as I said, privilege comes with responsibility. But just a different perspective of this and it's not my own experience, but something that I've heard from you know, women who are a lot more senior than me in, in positions of leadership, there's this view that you know, we worked our way up. We worked through all that mess and all the discrimination and everything else, so just toughen up and get on with it and quit complaining. So that's one perspective. And another perspective is that when you are a minority, and even today many women in power are, you feel really conflicted about supporting others like you because you worry that you might be seen as favoring them and not appointing based on merit. Um, so that's, you know, it's just a different perspective that I think we do need to be mindful of, that there are all these other things that are happening as well behind the scenes. Um, and just trying to understand why people behave in the way that they do. Damned if you do, damned if you don't then. How do we deal with the negative effects of cancel culture? Who would like to take that one? Anybody in the audience? Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're still dealing with that. Yeah. And it is a difficult one to address. 
Shall we so I'm going to say, I'm going to use one of the phrases I hate. So shall we circle back to that one? We'll put that, we'll just touch right. back on that one. If anyone's got any input into that one, we would welcome it greatly. Uh, oh, this is for you, Zaina. You talked about, if in doubt, just ask. How do we balance that with not placing a cultural burden on our minorities? Yeah. Very, very strong question, uh, powerful question. And, and actually, I, I talk myself about, you know, the burdens that I feel I face. And, you know, my fallback on this is, is intention. And I think if people can understand your intention and that they understand that intention is coming from a good place, um, that when you ask them, uh, they're more willing to help. Um, but also, try not to keep asking just the one person um, and so when you ask this one person for the first time, you might want to grow your network. You know, if we're talking about cultural diversity, for example, can that person introduce you to a, to a bunch of other people and then so on and so on, um, so that you're not just going to, to the one person uh, each time. But yeah, I think, you know, if people can see you coming from a, from a good space that um, your intent is, is right, um, then generally, you know, we, we're all willing to help, right? Because you can see that the outcome that's desired is, is an outcome that you want as well. Thank you for that. Sydney, this is one for you. Uh, what is your perception of how New Zealand is faring around diversity and inclusion compared to the US? What lessons can we learn? Oh, gosh. Um, it's kind of interesting. I kind of rave about New Zealand to my colleagues back in the US. and. Um, you know, I've had some of my um, European colleagues uh, ask me the question how I've been doing here. And I've been doing fine, quite frankly. Uh, I have and do love New Zealand, always will. Uh, it's treated me well. And maybe it's because of, you know, my position and it's kind of the people I hang around and they're okay with Sydney being Sydney, regardless of color, nationality, or ethnicity. Uh, but I have felt at ease in New Zealand. And so I want to thank all of you, to be honest, because it's been a great place to, to live and to work. Um, I feel like with, with and as it relates to the workplace and what, not necessarily what America can be teaching New Zealand, but what we could be teaching America, and I will take a lot of what I learned back to the U.S., is around the, uh, the, the focus on empathy, around the focus of really caring about another. Um, one of my challenges with my boss, who had to be in the boot of her own car, um, you know, we did a lot of development, well, she was developing me, uh, around, you know, really being mindful of my words because words matter. You know, in the U.S., you're pretty much straightforward. You don't really beat around the bush. You just go right to it. Um, but it's always about the how, right? It's not always about the what. It's the how. And I think that New Zealand, at least my experience in, in, in the workplace here in New Zealand and working with others here, is empathy, caring about other people, um, trying. I feel like there's, a, there's high attention and intention in trying to focus on diversity and inclusion. And to our point, we've talked about we're not going to always get it right. And whether you're in New Zealand or whether you're in America, we're all human beings. We all have biases and prejudices. We're not going to escape that. Um, we have nowhere to run to. We all have it. 
Uh, it's just a matter of what are you going to do? Once you're aware, as I said, what are you going to do with it? And I think in New Zealand, I have felt like we tried to address the, those things. And ha I was on the people, in the people function at Air New Zealand, and um, we talked about this all the time. And my then boss was really um, hyper-focused on that. And, you know, I love her for that, and I love everything I've learned. I'm kind of dragging on here, but if you want to talk to me, about my, any more about my experience here, um, what I would say is New Zealand has a lot, I have a lot of lessons to take back to America. Let's just say that. Thank you. Jan, this one is directed to you. Uh, how does Downer practically implement, we kind of covered a little bit, practically implement diversity and inclusiveness in a male-based environment? So I think we all know here it's a big area. And I think you, you kind of tackle pieces of it. So when I arrived at Downer, one of the things that it had, which is um, incredible actually, and has gone from strength to strength, is a Maori leadership program. So that had emerged kind of out of the business with a few people with a lot of foresight saying, we've got a lot of Maori employees and we don't have a lot of leaders and what are we going to do about that and how about we all show up at a marae one day and see what we can do and we'll bring a bunch of people. Um, that program's been running for about seven years. Um, and so that was something we had. So when we started to talk about diversity and inclusion, um, you look at what strengths you've got. So we already had this group of people in our organisation who'd been through this program. So we started doing things like at our leadership conference, we brought a bunch of those people along. They might be crew, four, four people, and they taught us things like Waiata and they, they taught. So they had your most senior leaders and you had this group of people and we started integrating. Out of that, just a throwaway comment, someone said to me, you know, we need to do more in this space. So we started a program called Taramaramatanga, which is a 24-hour immersion that we do for non-Māori on Marae, all led by our own people, people who've been through our program. So I guess you find what works for you. So that's where we've driven sort of cultural competence from, because we had something that was real and authentic and we'd built up a skill set. It's not the only thing we do by any means. We have women in leadership programs, uh, and we have other things, but I guess one of the pieces of research I heard once is that if you make a difference in any area of inclusion, it has a quantifiable effect on the others. So if you do better in cultural, it'll flow on to the others. So we do other things, we're trying, we're on our way to get the rainbow tick, and as I say, we do stuff around gender. But if you have any, my view, if you have an area of strength, really build on that and use that as sort of your arrowhead to bring other stuff behind you. Thanks, Great. Jan. Anna, this is one for you. How does Bendon's commitment to support and uplift women extend to the needs of fat, disabled, trans and non-binary customers? Is Bendon catering to women whose bodies fall outside of these standard shapes and sizing? Okay, that's a big question. Um, those of you who don't know the history of Bendon, it was created by two brothers, uh, Kiwi brothers here in Auckland, and Bendon is uh, derived from them wanting intimates to bend on the body and be more comfortable for women. We were, we, we were a company established for women, 
Um, and we have, to a certain extent, gone back to the core of that, which our team, by the way, challenged us when we um, released our vision and our purpose and actually probably had a very similar question. We're not just about women. We have LBGT community, like there we have certain um, stores that have their own community that get fitted out of hours. Um, we do men's, of course. Um, however, we felt it really important to go back to our foundations and really focus on the core of who we were, which were women. We are very lucky to own multiple brands um, and, you know, I'm going to get roused on, but I say we cover from cradle to grave for all different types of ages and each brand also has its own DNA that talks to each, I guess, body type. Unfortunately, um, fashion, uh, a bra is very complicated. So it has 25 different pieces and someone that has a smaller breast to a larger breast, they're going to need a different construction and a different support. So we do have um, a heritage brand called Fairform, which uh, specialises in D, double D plus uh, and the larger back and the larger cup. Um, we've got Bendon, which is our innovation and our heritage and, you know, super great technology that covers, you know, most um, sizes and breasts. Uh, and then we have Me, which is our fashion brand. It's not unfortunately going to cater for someone that is a G or a H cup as such, um, because those fashion products that you want, that you expect to see, just don't have the ability to support. So we're very conscious of the... Um, uh, different sh body shapes, uh, you know, big, large, um, small, slim, uh, and we, I think we cover that within our brands, but what we don't do is we don't do a great job of educating people. So, you know, I do, and I'm very conscious of the fact that people go, oh, you know, they may see our ads, which, you know, you alluded to before, Mel, um, you know, I want to see larger women, and oh, they only cater for that, but, you know, we're, it's a journey for us and we're getting there. Thank you very much. So we'll take another couple of questions and then we're going to move on, I think, because we're getting about ready for that time, to move on to the next part of, of the M2 journey to excellence, which is, of course, the bubbles and the networking as well. But Zaina, this question is for you. What is so special about the New Zealand experience? Migrants with significant international experience suffer unique frustration as a result of this vague, excluding phrase. I, uh, I, I don't know what's so special about the New Zealand experience. Um, part of it, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, I think our, our recruitment strategies, and when I say that I don't, I'm not just referring to HR people, I'm referring to everyone that's part of a panel, I think we can get quite lazy when we are looking to recruit. We recruit based on, on what's worked in the past, and we use that as a measure of how we think something will be in the future. We take a tick box approach, so we have a job description and we have you know, these phrases that are there about you need to have done this and have a degree in this and worked in this sort of space. Um, and when we see candidates who you know, perfectly match those or, or almost there, it's very easy to go with that rather than to sort of stretch our imagination a little bit and say, what would this look like? Um, part of that also is that um, it's easier, right? It's easier to understand qualifications and experience that you are comfortable with, with, with brand names, if you like, of education institutions or, or other businesses that you've seen here. You know who they are, you know the type of work that they're doing. 
you don't necessarily have that same information about companies overseas or education institutions overseas. So it's easier to default to what you know. Um, and, and that's a huge challenge for us because, as I said, there's so many of us who weren't born here. Um, some obviously came when they were quite young, so still went through the New Zealand education system, but there are many of us who didn't. Um, and especially now with the, you know, expat Kiwis coming home, some of them have been away for many, many years. The bulk of their work experience has been international work experience. And so we need to try and learn to understand how that experience can, can be applied into a New Zealand context. Because we are a very small domestic market, so most of our companies are international businesses anyway. And that experience is powerful. Those networks are powerful. And we're shooting ourselves in the foot if we don't try and learn about them. Okay, I think we'll take this as a final question. We could st sit here for hours, I think, talking to you. You're all such fascinating women with such great advice to offer. Um, advice for allies. How do you pass the mic while still pursuing your own ambitions and goals? I think you could all have a crack at that one. What do we mean by that? Well, that's a great question, Sydney. <laughs> Whose question is this? Oh, so, what, so what exactly do you mean? So if you are a white male that's a general manager, Oh, I don't think that's the answer. That's my, that's my view. And I think, <laughs> I got an interesting view. Um, can I be on your talk, your radio talk show? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Here's the thing. I'm a big believer in, um, I'm a big believer in excellent. I feel like if you're excellent in what you do, you know, people will notice. Um, and I've, I've had diversity inclusion under me and in the past, and I always try to focus on the individual's competence first. I think if we lead with, with color, whether you're white, black, blue, green, purple, or brown, I think it just creates more of a problem um, for everyone when you're not or if you're older or younger and you're, and you're focused on those things rather than what is it that you need and who's the best person for the job, whether you're white, black, brown, 60, 30. I think if we could just stick with that, we might find ourselves in a much better position, even for diversity. And I know sometimes Part of our challenge is we don't have the pipeline, uh, you know, for people that might have that same competence as someone who is white. But that's where this journey of leadership programs begins. And it also should begin at home as well. Um, and I'm not so sure that you should suppress your desire for what you want to achieve just because you think if you get the job, you won't diversify 
the executive team. That, to me, is, but maybe, here's a different angle, you get that job and maybe, with your influence and power, you help develop someone to take your seat. Maybe that would be an alternative, is what I would say. That's Sydney's view. I guess what I was, how I interpret your question is, like everyone here, well, not everyone, you might have ambition, and you might be worried about whether diversity is going to play out in terms of your ability to achieve that ambition. I guess my advice is always the same for everyone who wants something at the next level, is be super, super good at the level you're at. So what you could do now is build a really high-performing, diverse team and then you're probably likely at some point to be the best candidate because you've demonstrated that you really know how to do that. That'll A, make you super good at what you do, but also demonstrate that those kind of skill sets will be played out at your next level. So um, I, I agree with Sydney, but I guess I think we've always got the option to do what we think we might be going to do there when we're still here. And if you do it here, a, you'll do it better when you're there, but it'll be noticed. So that'd be kind of what I might say to that. Yeah, and I guess my advice, and I agree with Jan as well, is um, I've always had the philosophy and tried to pass that down, is your job is to make yourself redundant. So um, include the team around you, develop them, make them the high-performing team or part of the high-performing team or pass the mic on to them. And don't be worried about that well, what does that mean for me? Because if you're in the right business with the right leaders, then they're going to notice that and you're going to get your opportunity, whether that's at the GM level, store manager level, exec team level. Um, but I think that you also have to you know, be brave enough to make the right decisions to ensure that you are in the right place and the right company and it all comes down to values and who you surround yourself with too. Everything that they've said. Um, <laughs> I... Can I just commend you, though, on, on the question around, you know, you want to be an ally. And, and in wanting to be an ally, you are almost suppressing your own ambition. Um, but I don't think any of us needs to suppress our ambition because of what we think diversity on a leadership team or anywhere in our organisation looks like. Um, I think having ambition is great because it says you want to, to do better, be better, and that enables you to help other people do better and be better. So, so don't, you know, don't suppress your ambition. If that's your target, do it. But as, as you know, my, my fellow uh, panelists here have said, I think aspiring for leadership is great because your ability to impact and influence is so much higher at that point. And actually getting that job might enable you to make a difference in your organization on a level you can't see now. But also don't just think of diversity as being a gender thing or a, or a ethnicity thing, right? Um, you probably bring I'm guessing here now, but you know, you could be bringing um, sectoral experience or, or knowledge about specific uh, skills or industries that, that don't exist on your board table. So those are different ways of thinking that you're bringing or, or different socioeconomic background. But also that you know, anyone of us can be an ally. You don't have to be in the executive team or on a board to be an ally. Um, you can be an ally even with your friends. Um, you know, we talked about asking questions or or trying to get a better understanding of, of difference. I mean, if I said to everyone in this room, raise your hand if you think you are diverse. Actually, let's do that as an exercise. One second. Raise your hand if you think, if you, think you are diverse. As in you think diversely, or you are d diverse Just in your Whatever your definition of diversity is. 
Yeah? Anyone that didn't raise their hand? That's interesting in itself. Now, for those of you that thought of yourself as diverse, take, you don't have to answer this, but take a second to think of who you thought of as the other. If this is who I am, then who do I think of as the other? Because in an organization like yours, which has 90% you know, women, what the other looks like is going to be quite different from your organization. And I think we just need to be very mindful and keep, you know, uh, think broadly when we're thinking in this space. What a wonderful way to end. <laughs> Sydney, Jan, Anna, Zaina, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Thank you. Thank you.